0: Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 34 of Swimming Upstream and the culmination of our 2021 season recap series. We've been all through the minors, and today we round it out uh, with the major league team, the Miami Marlins. Herein, we're going to discuss a dismal 2021 season. No, get, no getting past that. Uh, that's the bad news. <laughs> the good news is that the Marlins have already made multiple moves that point towards vast improvement at the big league level in 2022 and are expected to make more post lockout. So we're going to get to all of that. Uh, but first let's, let's bring in today's panel uh, as, as always back with me today, it's my partner in crime. It's Danny DeVivo, uh, Danny, man. Um, I'm excited for all, all of our shows, but I'm especially excited for this one. A lot to dig into,
1: right? Absolutely, man. Um, as, as you know, love, love, Hitting these um, conversations with you, bringing, up, bringing on friends, players, everyone. Um, talking Marlins, talking prospects. I love it.
0: <clears throat> Absolutely. So, as I said, there's a lot to get into uh, and a lot of varying viewpoints, um, particularly recently between me and our first guest on the show. Uh, those of you guys that watch and read This Man's Programming know that. Uh, but I got to say, me, me and this gentleman, we go way back probably about 10 years, maybe even a little bit more than that. And I can tell you from experience, he, he's one of the best wealth of knowledge working to cover this team. And past that, one of the hardest working people covering this team, past pumping out his own content. You know, he runs podcasts, live streams, runs two social media accounts, and helps young people such as our second guest, whom I will get to eventually, uh, you know, just build their careers and and start their careers in sports media. He's also done a ton to help our project since we've started it. So an all around great person, a great professional, and a dear friend. Even if we disagree sometimes, but hey, that's where creates quality conversation. That's what creates quality content, and that's why we love this guy. It's it's the managing editor of Fish Stripes, Mr. Eli Sussman. Eli, man, welcome into swimming upstream. You know we've had you on before but uh man it, it's it's a pleasure to welcome you back and always a pleasure to talk to you about marlins baseball and baseball as a whole so what's going on and what's going on with fish stripes and how we doing
2: hello yeah i'm familiar with you guys i've heard your pod before and your side and yeah uh i i have to just reciprocate it, all the compliments that you just said like fish stripes and, and fish on the farm it's We've just so much in common, even though we sometimes work on parallel tracks, but more often than not, we, we intersect with like the way that we cover this team and some of the ways we feel about this team. Yeah, I, I love this project. So it's a pleasure to be on, uh, even if the, the content of this episode is a little bit of a downer. I'll, I'll try to spice it up. Um, it's an interesting time. Right now, uh, just a few days into the MLB lockout, and yeah, unfortunately, um, as you alluded to, you know, the Marlins, they got a little bit of, I shouldn't undersell them, like some considerable amount of action that they got done improving their team, uh, also drawing away from their farm system right before the break, it just, it gives me a, a whole lot to dive into over the next Hopefully only one month, but more likely more than one month that we are in a transaction freeze. Uh, the, the moves that they made are really worth diving into. And just at the end of every year, there's always a whole lot of reflection to do on our own platforms on Fish Stripes. So we, uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, it's just we're proud to be on a gazillion different platforms and different formats and different shows and have different individual contributors that bring their own spice to our Marlins coverage. And uh, yeah, and I, I guess I'm a decent part of that. So uh, I'm glad to bring my perspective onto your show. Thank you very much, Alex.
0: Yeah, of course. Glad to have you. And um, you mentioned a wealth of talent on, on Stripes, And one of those individuals is our second guest on the show today. Isaac Azut, man, a, a newer member of Stripes. you know, stacked roster of talent that you guys have. But this guy has come in and been the media equivalent of a top five rated prospect, in my opinion. This guy has come in, just been a fantastic sure. addition to your staff, Eli. And um, you know, he's he's been at games. He's hosting podcasts. You know, he, he's with your our buddy Kevin as well, who's also great. And just just bringing a wealth of knowledge and, and a wealth of absolute true true creative content to your, to your project. So man, I mean, I, I'm I'm so glad to to welcome in. Uh, a good friend that I've gotten to know over the course of the last few months here. Um, Isaac Azu. Isaac, man, as a fellow South Floridian, welcome into the show. Happy Hanukkah to you and, and, and to Isaac as, and to uh, Eli as well. So uh, how are we doing, man? It's a pleasure to have you on and um, it's been great to get to know you this last couple months.
3: Hey months. And likewise, I really appreciate the kind words, man. Happy Hanukkah to you as well. Uh, you know, like you said, man, Eli, you know, was fortunate, uh, was generous enough to give me an opportunity with fish stripes And it's been just so great to get to know you, get to know Daniel and everyone on the fish tribe staff. I really appreciate you having me on today, man.
0: Yeah, for sure. Absolute pleasure. Um, we got a lot to get to, so we're, we're going to get right to it. And the first thing I want to get to before we get to our, our Marlins, which is what we really want to cover here on the show is, is the culmination of, of the, um, the coverage of the staff as a whole, We, you know, you guys have known, we've had uh, guests on that have covered the, um, the, the levels of the minor league system. But before we get to that, we, we want to get to um, to one thing as a whole on the front of major league baseball. Um, and I'm going to go to you, Eli, first, we're going to switch off on this episode. That's going to kind of be how we structure it is we're going to go back and forth and any rebuttal of course is, is, is more than welcome. So uh, this is a conversation that we really want to have with you guys about um, what's really striking Major League Baseball as a whole, including the Marlins, um, is this lockout that has since been instituted here since December 1st. Um, so, yeah, we want to get to that and, and just want to, want, to, want to hear your thoughts on, on what's going on here. Um, we heard the report a few days ago from Jeff Passan that these meetings that, that were happening in Texas, there was really absolute zero progress towards any deal in, in the CBA. The two sides were meeting for like five to 10 minutes and there was literally no movement towards an agreement at all. So from that standpoint and from those th- that point in time, we could probably say that this was kind of a uh, foregone conclusion that this was going to happen. So yeah, I mean, w- I'm, we can be brief here, Eli. I wanna go to you first on this. I I, I mean, I think we agreed in the last time that we spoke to you, that there really wasn't that one single pressing black or white issue that was really striking these conversations, but it appears that there apparently is. I mean, I think that the most pressing issue, if we can narrow it down to one, is this shorter path to arbitration, this shorter path to free agency. You know, the the um, the association, the players' association, is really saying that they want this this two year path to to arbitration before you know, you know, before there was this three-year path and three and three. Right. So I, I really thought personally that that was a fair point that, you know, you can't really know enough about a player before three years to really say and really judge him fairly. And I said this on your show, Eli, about him really, you know, you can't really know that much about a player and enough about a player to really grant him fairly and for arbiters to grant him fairly. Um, in the arbitration process so i, I really think it's fair um, from the standpoint that we currently have but i wanted to get your thoughts on this if this is the pressing issue and it appears as this as though this is a big one um what are your thoughts on this and 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 why do you think that one side or the other is correct
2: yeah i, I think we' well, basically saying the same thing that baseball is in this era where players younger and younger at least at the very top of the chain they reach the big league's extremely ready to already be impact players in the big leagues. And they can prove it almost instantaneously that they are among their, the better players in the league. And yet we have the system that uh, through the years, teams have been become expertly exploiting the fact that um, when they have a, a prospect, that's like ready to break through, they, they can take all these little steps to make it as hard as possible for them to actually reach arbitration, to reach free agency, to get paid fairly. And it works out the same way at the other end of the aging curve, right? Where um, uh, conventional wisdom used to be a lot different in terms of when players declined. Some of that was involved with the the performance enhancing drugs and what that was doing to kind of warp the aging curve. And I I think this is a credit somewhat to major league baseball that it does seem those have been winged out of the game. And we are seeing it in the fact that now players, once they get into their early thirties, um, with few exceptions, those players just aren't that desirable anymore. And we had this system where before there was the current understanding that we have now players got paid for what they used to do rather than what they are going to do. And front offices have wisened up and adjusted to that such that. So now we have these super valuable players at the start of their career that get paid peanuts, basically the league minimum for several, several years, and then several more until they get, can actually get their market value and on the other end of the curve where most of the money used to be going to these players already established in their careers that already have all these accolades teams understands in many cases that those players are already in decline and so that money that used to go to them isn't going there anymore The, the sport keeps growing and growing and growing and despite like the rhetoric that's out there i think that's something to remind people that the revenues keep going up and up and up and up in the sport and yet salaries the total payout to the players has essentially stayed flat, especially for the last half decade. So when we're talking about the situation, the relationship between players and ownership, it's been five years since the last time that the CBA got renewed, and in the five years since then, salaries have essentially remained flat, even while all other evidence points to the fact that the game is growing in revenue. That's kind of the sticking point: is that players understandably believe they deserve to have a piece of the pie that's proportional to the revenues coming into the sport and yet under the current setup um front offices the people running the teams are determining based on the current set of rules that we don't actually have to split up the revenue like that and so there has to be a reckoning um and whether that's I'm of the belief it won't be a drastic change to the way that the sport is set up there's only so much that you can change in a matter of months because these sides have been really dragging their feet on these issues for years for like since the midpoint of the CBA terms it's been clear that some changes would be needed from the players perspective and yet these teams just have not had any substantial dialogue at all uh, in the lead up to this they've kind of let it reach this point um and so ultimately I don't think that the future of this setup is going to look all that much different than the current form, but the players more so than they've been in decades, you know, they are really motivated to, to, to like be as patient as it requires to get these changes because they feel they're being screwed over and they, they kind of are, they've been outsmarted by front offices and they're trying to even the playing fields by really digging their feet into the grounds on these negotiations Something that the MLB is is trying
1: to, um, well, in theory, trying to protect is the competitiveness, right? Is is you know making sure that the big market teams don't eat up the little teams. So, in terms of control, you know, the, which is something they get keep going back to. Do you think that reducing, you know, from six to five to four years, whatever it is. Do you think that that would greatly hurt teams like the Marlins? Um, you know, if if players know that their their control is, is less, um, you know that they'll be a free agent quicker. It's they probably won't extend um, as readily as they do now. Like, do you think there's some validity to that? Um, trying to protect that, or do you think it's more just you know the commissioner trying to? Yeah, just. <laughs> screw the players, right?
3: Well, I mean, you know, if that were the case there, Daniel, imagine what kind of, you know, let's say if Jazz Chisholm were to, you know, get to arbitration in one year, like in two years rather than three, what what kind of what would his salary look like in, you know, year number two? So I think that's like the fascinating thing, because Alex makes a good point. You can't really gauge a player's, you know, talent-wise in the big league level in less than three years. So I think it'd be like a drastic, you know, it'd, it'd hurt Major League Baseball teams in trying to, you know, for the arbitrators anyway to Rightfully, you know, balance these guys, these guys' numbers. I think it would hurt.
2: Yeah, I don't. I, I feel like any drastic change would have a whole lot of unintended consequences. That I don't think necessarily would would hurt one market all that much more than the other when you're when you're talking. About that, but yeah, I'm glad you brought up about competitive integrity and that being another driver of that. Where uh, aside from individual players being treated differently, the fact that just at in any given year there are a handful of teams and sometimes more than a handful of teams that do not give a shit at all about the upcoming season, and that's reflected in their spending. They are under the way that baseball is set up. Even the teams, the smallest market teams and the worst teams, they have this really great baseline of revenue. That no matter what, no matter like how unwatchable they are, no matter what the sentiment is around the team, that they don't have proper motivation to actually um spe- like put the their best foot forward and really focus on the players themselves rather than t- they're uh, it's becoming a lot easier to just default to the long view and sit out for particular seasons when you feel that you're not within reach of making a deep playoff run or not. So there are, again, if there was more time, if, if these like re- these sides really started talking in 2019 and in 2020 about this stuff. and I gotta, you know admit that the pandemic probably screwed the screwed this thing up to, to some extent. I mean, the pandemic made it harder to focus on the next cpa when you're just focused on the current year and how to adjust to that. So uh, I'll, I'll mention that that if there was not for COVID, Maybe this thing would have been handled more succinctly. This was that was just something out of their control that hurt everybody in in different ways. Um, yeah, if not for that, they'd be able to really take a more creative approach to this and and try to find that middle ground. And uh, yeah, instead, it's it's going to be a pretty tense couple months seeing how this plays out and what actually gets pushed through in the new deal. Yeah and then, right.
1: there there's yep.
0: other aspects you know we got rule changes we got we got a ton of other stuff that's 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 in there but i th- i think the main aspect here as as daniel mentioned is the economic issues of getting these players to free agency and, and and you know into their arbitration years more quickly and as as you guys have said and as i've mentioned i think the current system is fair so i mean we'll see what happens there but i I've mentioned this before. I, I really don't think that the, that the players association should be too hard up on that because I think the current system is fair, but that's another, another topic for, for another time. Um, we want to get into, um, to our, our Marlins and to uh, yeah. into what's going on with, <laughs> with those. That was just a kind of a precursor, but um, we'll, we'll get, we'll get into that. Um, and I kind of, I, I, I want to go to, uh, to our buddy, Isaac here, here first uh, on our first question. So yeah, um, you know. Yeah, I'll take
1: it. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Right. Um, You know, let's go kind of back in time Um, and it's 2020 and um, Marlins finally made the playoffs. You know, it's it's such a high for the fan base after 17 years, after the season, you know, people were expecting for Miami to be more active um, in, in making their their team and more specifically their offense just better. But apart from a couple of moves like Duvall and <laughs> Bass, um, it was pretty disappointing knowing um, your top prospects are further away. Why do you think the Marlins? And again, I would say to Isaac. And then both of you, um, why do you think the Marlins weren't more active in free agents to the last year? Like, do you feel maybe that they didn't feel they were ready? Um or do you think there's some, some other reasons in there?
3: Well, I mean, honestly, I think that they thought they were ready last year. And going into 2021, going to 2020, they really thought that they were there, which is like the scary part because I think, you know, Eli, Alex, you know, all of us, I'm sure we all you know the consensus was that this team was at least a couple hitters away from being truly competitive. So I think, I think now that they had a reality check sort of in 2021, seeing that they lost so many games with a guy like Marte, with a guy like Duvall that, you know, like, Hey, listen, we need to sign Garcia. We need to sign at least a couple of bullpen arms, a couple more outfield options because, you know, I'm glad that they see this. I asked Craig Mish this the other day that, listen, do they know that they're still far away? And he said, yeah. So I think that really helped them out losing that many games this year. It was a, it was a much needed reality check for this front office.
2: Yeah. A, com- a combination of a couple of things. I mean, we have to go back to money. The fact that they entered, last year with a payroll that was like right around $60 million. Um, I'm sure that that the pandemic had a part to play in that, that no matter that I I don't want to put too much blame on Kim Eng, because I think that all evidence points to the fact that she was just working with a limited budget, that they were, the budget was again, significantly lower than what had been even entering the 2020 spring training. And that, that limited some of the flexibility that they had to um, address the team people, one of the you know, big successes of last off season was getting Adam Duvall. And I, I don't think that was their first choice. Uh, they kind of stumbled into him uh, because other corner outfield bats like him were a little bit more expensive. And it turned out that just because the, the things that he did well were so exceptional that they made up for the faults in his game, that he was able to actually be a really good value for the money that they spent on him. Uh, what really jumped out, as the entire offseason was going last year, um, I think a lot of us were on the same page. And the one thing that I was really hammering home is that they did not have enough innings in, in the rotation that as high as they felt about this, these young pitchers that they had both at the major league level and the next wave, it wasn't enough. It was like glaringly obvious that they needed some sort of veteran to be added to that. And they did the absolute bare minimum in that when it was they? You. I think like yeah, it was Gino, and there was maybe like one other sort of guy like that that got a also a minor league invite, but didn't have any major league experience. And then Gio retires before the season even starts. There were other guys out there um, at that time. I remember how much um, brain power I focused on Anibal Sanchez, saying you know he's out there, yeah, and as right. it turned out, you know that might not have been a difference, out but it was it was it was, it was somebody yeah. it was somebody like that where. Um, they did not do what they should have done with the rotation. And at least for me, no, I think I can speak for a lot of us that the catching situation, even entering last year, it was clear that they did not, um, they were not good enough that that was going to be a big weakness to the team. And again, they did the bare minimum. They gave Sandy Leon, a minor league deal, and he ended up coming up pretty early as the next man up after an injury. And, um, that turned out to be a big weakness for the team. As well. uh, So those were a couple areas where they didn't even need to spend a whole lot of money, but I feel they were with Jorge Alfaro. Maybe we'll talk about him a little bit more later that he was an obvious guy in a make or break year. And they did not want to challenge him as the start. They wanted to like trust him. They wanted to say, here you go, uh, sink or swim as our primary catcher. And um, we know how that kind of turned out. So they, they didn't invest much at that position. Would, I really can't explain exactly what the approach was to the pitching side where understanding coming off the shortened season that they had where suspected that the injury rate for pitchers, the attrition was going to be higher than usual because those guys just didn't have innings the year before that they needed something on that end. And so as well as the top of the rotation performed at times, obviously the back end disintegrated for the majority of the year and that, that hurt them in a lot of uh, really close games.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I I guess that segues kind of perfectly into our next one. Um, you know, as inactive as this club was kind of during the off season where, where Anthony Bass is your biggest signing and that that's the guy that you're, you're putting the hype video out that we all saw. I'm sure. Um, all of us here saw that, um, you know, that's your biggest signing of the year. And there were other guys that were in there that were, that were definitely candidates to be signed here, um, in Miami. You know, then during the season, this is the next thing I want to get to, is the inactivity to move players, right? So whenever the Rule 5 draft happens this season, we know it's probably going to be delayed because of the lockout. The Marlins will be exposing guys like Bryson Brigman, Tommy Eville, Colton Hawk, Griffin Conine, and a few other guys that could have easily, I think, been added to the 40-man roster sometime during the season, or at least before that 40-man deadline where you have to add guys or expose them to the Rule 5 draft. So it never happened for any of those guys that I just mentioned, and the organization can now lose those guys without receiving anything back, as we all know. And to go past that, they also had guys like Nick Neider and Braxton Garrett, both of whom, from the pitching side, I've seen as guys that have nothing left to prove in minor league baseball it's either going to work at the big league level or it's not. And there were times this year where both of those guys, I think, really showed really well. Uh, And at the very least, definitely earned the shot to stay with the Marlins for a longer tenure, you know, in place of another inefficient arm. And they didn't do it. I'll I'll give you an example. Braxton Garrett, you know, I think late in July, he strikes out 10 guys in seven innings and they immediately send him back to to the minor league level. So we saw a lot of dead weight, you know, that I spoke to uh, move on. These guys have since moved on after after this 2021 season, I thought should have moved on before that. So, I mean, I, I just have a question for, for both of you guys. I guess I go to you first, Isaac. Can you bring some clarity to this and tell us why you think this maddening strategy of holding on to this dead weight, both positionally and from the pitcher side, I think, you know, why, why didn't this, this happen sooner as, as to why these guys that proved they were effective at the, at, at the major league level and guys that didn't even get that chance to prove that they were effective at the major league level? You know why? Why didn't those guys get more of a chance, and, and and why are we are why are we here where we're at right now talking about this?
3: Well, I mean, I think with those guys like Braxton Garrett and Nick Nieder, you mentioned it perfectly that they they were just in a wrong situation with roster construction. They could not, for their lives, just get a break, and we're getting like tours restarts in a row. And with the position players like Alfaro and Isan Diaz, I think like Eli said on Fish Stripes Live, it was all about pinching pennies, and these guys just simply they needed to get rid of them you know, and it's just hard to explain and hard to fathom why these guys just – why not just put a guy like Bryson Brigman or Tommy Ebel on the major league roster rather than these guys, and now they're all going to be, you know, sacrificing the Rule 5 draft for, you know, close to no good reason whatsoever. And unfortunately for Braxton Nick, I think they're going to be, like, trade bait this offseason for sure, and it's going to be tough just to witness that because they traded a couple of arms already, like Kyle Nicholas, and they're going to need those guys for depth 100%.
2: For all the things that we can co- complain about about this team, I mean, yeah, the weakest component I felt uh, of this past year uh, under this current iteration of the front office is just how they have managed this forty-man roster and the guys that they they've left on too long and the guys that, as you mentioned, just didn't get a chance whatsoever. It, it's hard to really um like put a blanket statement around exactly what it is other than you just hope with more reps and more time and just learning lessons from this year that they're going to adjust and be better at that, uh, moving forward. i you know, forcibly this past, um, in these recent weeks, finally, some of those familiar faces, those, uh, I guess, internal favorites of the organization, like Brinson and Alfaro um, and Sierra, just the fact that, you know, they have, um, finally reached a point where they're starting to make more money that's fine that's been the motivation that's been the breaking point for them finally making tough decisions is these guys are wow, well these guys are going to make way more than the league minimum and then all of a sudden it's a, they that's kind of the, their cue to look at the numbers and realize wow uh they're probably not worth uh, that pay rate it's, even though they probably weren't worth you know what they were earning before um it still is yeah it, on that particular aspect they do seem to be really motivated by yeah the really incremental amounts of money more so than trying to uncover w- which of these guys are real difference makers and that's that's really um, if you look at or an organization like the Tampa Bay Rays that they, the Marlins insist they want to kind of mimic in some capacities I mean one of the strengths of the Rays is that they do give a whole lot of different guys opportunities and probably the majority of them don't prove to be anything special but then Uh, Pretty much every single year, they uncover a couple of new guys just because they took advantage of the really small opportunity because in that small chance in the big leagues, they were able to show something even in a tiny sample size that looked repeatable and somewhat exceptional. And if you look at the Marlins this past season, there are little cases of guys that have been success stories in their opportunities at the very end of the year, somebody like Nick Fortes, who was relatively low. Um, I, I could speak for all of us kind of on all our minds entering the year. And then by the end of the season, um, not only performing as he did in the minors, but translating it into the majors and some of the underlying stats indicate that, wow, this guy has an actual major league bat at position. That's hard to find and they waited a, a long time to uh, get him involved. And even at the end of the year, kind of splitting up his playing time probably more than they had to. Uh, it's, it's something you'd like to see a whole lot moving forward, is cycling between a variety of different players, and that's incumbent on you actually putting that depth together in the first place by player development, by taking a lot of flyers on uh, minor league deals, by being very aggressive on the waiver wire, that they, they can lean into this stuff a little bit more than they have Especially in 2021.
1: I mean, roster construction, man. Comparing 2021 with 2020, night and day. Like you could, like if you would ask um, who's the general manager of the year in 2020, people would probably say Mike Hill, because what he did with COVID and uh, everything that happened, still making the playoffs, still having a winning record. Um, you know, compared to what they did in 2021 um yeah this last year was just really disappointing that it's just the Moreros and the friggin maderos and you know just up and down up and down it just got to a point where it was really tiring so with that in mind um you know since the inception of 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 this ownership they were always pretty vocal in their strategy to kind of build a homegrown club always and, But now, as we're seeing in 2021, they are focused. Now they kind of changed. They're, they're now more focused to just going to outside sources for MLB help um, and you know, not depleting the system while doing it, at least you know so far. So, what do you guys think about the direction of the of the franchise this offseason? As many, you know, with as many of their top prospects now closer to their debuts. Uh, in 2022 um, how much different do you think the 40 man construction has been already this off season?
2: It's, yeah, it's a promising start. I'd say uh, what they did uh, prior to the lockout with making some decisions. It's the, the fact that they're making these decisions in some cases, even earlier than they had to something that I know Alex has brought up to us is about this this handful of outfielders that they had who are all going to be rule five draft eligible next year. And how over the course of the next year, they would have to kind of pare that down because even if all of them were successful, they're just, they wouldn't be quite as valuable in this organization as they might be with somebody else uh, just due to all the depth that they had at that particular level. And then we saw in the trades that they made right before the lockout, including Connor Scott in the Jacob Stallings trade and including Cameron Meisner in the Joey Wendell trade that um, those were two guys that have pretty nice ceilings to them, but the Marlins are making a bet that they might not reach those ceilings. And there's a handful of other guys kind of on that similar timeline of the similar age range that are also outfielders that uh, they trust more. And so, you know, they made a decision on that. And in both cases got players that have pretty substantial major league track records and have like a, a really coherent fit, on the roster. And that's why, especially the, the stalling trade was a, a pretty popular one because you could understand what they were doing. They were trading from a strength to address a weakness. And that's, I mean, thats really baseball transactions in their simplest form is. Yeah. Understanding what you can afford to lose and, and what you desperately need. Um, the, the players that, of course I mentioned just a few minutes ago about the guys that did actually get squeezed off the 40 man that we had been seeing there for years and years. Um, that, was, that was refreshing and a little bit overdue. And we wish those guys all the best of luck in the future with, with their other organizations. The early signs are, are nice. And as you mentioned, there were at times, we've, we've heard it in the public comments, really, uh, especially, I guess it came from a few different voices, but probably more so Jeter than everybody else about uh, this fantasy of building a homegrown team and it's never that simple and um if you want to refer back to the rays again you know that's another team that finds undervalued players with other organizations and then tries to optimize them in their own organization that as as you know carefully as you can make some of these decisions when you acquire players as amateurs or acquire them as prospects um eventually the evidence will tell you whether you're probably right or probably wrong about them and you need to have the you can't be too stubborn to correct right or wrong and to, you know, like cut your losses when it's available to you. They, so they might be trending in a, that right direction. you know, coming to the realization that it's not as simple as putting together the very best farm system at baseball that along the way uh, at various levels of your depth, um, that there's going to have to be more adjustments made and you have to make it make sense. Uh, At the end of the day, it's not just about compiling who you think are the most talented players. It's about, yeah, ultimately putting together an organization that is is deep and is ready to compete. um, Hopefully, we're thinking this next season and then certainly for the handful of years beyond that.
1: Yeah,
0: I think you're right. I think we all knew that they were going to deal from this depth, be it starting pitching or outfield. Um, You know, we can get into it later about what we thought about the returns for the trades that we saw, but uh, that'll be later on. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, honestly, they had so much to protect um, from, from the rule five draft um, next season to add them to the 40 man roster. And while I I do still think there is room on the 40 man roster and we can talk about that as well, but um, there is still room on the 40 man roster, but they they have a lot of guys to protect, man. I mean, we could talk about Bladé and Burdick who are the obvious two, who are rule five eligible next year. But you also have Victor Victor Mesa, who, you know, whatever your opinion may be on him, the Marlins spent $5 million on him and 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 traded away pieces to get the pool money for him. So um, you, you like to think that they they are not as willing to just let him go for nothing. Um, and then you have smaller pieces behind that. I mean, I like J.D. Orr. You got Osiris Johnson, M.D. Johnson, who I think could be good. Brian Hoeing. There's multiple names, uh, you know, that, that could be that could be in there. Will Banfield, Cameron said. I mean, we can go to catchers. So there's, there's a big rule five class next year that, that the Marlins are going to have to address, whether it be protecting them or letting them go. So, you know, by, by dealing from some of that, you know, with, with Connor Scott and Cam Meisner, who were also in that conversation, um, they kind of alleviate themselves a little bit, you know, as I said, but, um, you know, uh, whether you, whatever you think of the returns for those trades um, and I think those are mixed that, uh, that uh, you know, there, there's some room to move a little bit more with what they did in moving guys. And I, I think that's, that's important. Right. So um, yeah, that, that's it on that. We, we could get to a little bit of that later on, but um, the next thing I want to go to, um, I want to go back to Isaac um, and this one, you know, man on, on a couple of platforms, as we know, you've, you've been vocal about there being pressure on Derek Jeter and the Marlins front office to succeed. And I think by everything we have seen this off season so far, that pressure, as well as Derek Jeter's natural desire to really try to avoid losing at all costs has fueled the beginnings of a much better team in 2022. I mean, I think, and we're going to get to it, but I I think from everything the Marlins have done so far, the Marlins at the big league level are are much better already, Um, you know, lockout being here. And there's probably going to be some movement after this as well. They're already so much better. So I want to ask you about another guy, that's in a position of leadership. I want to ask you about Dom Um, 2020. Good. Great. And manager of the year, you couldn't have asked much more than that. Um, this season, you got to say it's the opposite. And I, I know it's not all him. I know he's got to deal with what he has and deal with the moves that are being made around the organization. So, man, I mean, you can't argue with it. This was a failure of a season for the Miami Marlins. And the guy that most people are going to look to and blame for that, maybe some somewhat undeservedly is, is Don Manningley. But man, 2022, it's, it's the last year the Marlins have him under contract, right? So Isaac, the Marlins are going out and making all these moves. They're hell bent on improving the MLB roster. And there will be some big name prospects ready to contribute, I think fairly quickly next year. Such as as Sixto you know, continuing to improve um, if he stays healthy, Meyer Max Meyer, um, Burdick Bladé. I, I think they will eventually add him to the major league roster. Um, you're also looking at a potentially transformed National League that promotes more offense if the DH and other rule changes, such as the shift rule, you know the types of balls that are being used, pitch clocks. You know we can get to all this stuff that's in the CBA. But man, just just judging by Mattingly himself, you know if if some of what I just said comes to fruition. You know, how much pressure is there on Don Mattingly to produce a winning club? What do you think about this?
3: I don't think his seat has ever been as hot in his Marlins tenure. Honestly, I think, you know, in, I can't blame 2021 on him at all because you, you look at 2020 and that team was going downhill very quickly. It's They were lucky it was a sixty game season and they really, they made it into the playoffs by the, you know, the teeth of their skin. So 2021, I think it was the front office that was, you know, sort of, Hell bent on thinking that this team was anything more than a 500 win ball club at best when healthy, so I don't think you can put that on him. I don't know if the front office believes that, but I think, like you said, man, I don't think his seat has ever been as hot. I think if Miami sort of the Mike Redmond of 2015, if Miami goes into May, 15, 10 games under 500, I don't think Gier will be afraid to pull the cord on on Don Matley. I'm not saying it's the right move, but I think that's a that's unfortunately a that's a possibility because. Jeter really, you know, since, you know, taking over, taking ownership, you know, badly has been the guy and I'm sure that he and Kim May maybe want to bring in their own guy at one point. This is the last year of Lee's contract. And I think I, I truly mean that if Miami, like with all these acquisitions, they've never invested as much money as they have this off season, $109 million in one day. So I think that if Miami comes out of the gate slowly, we might be looking at someone else in the manager's box for sure
2: i not worried too much about them like canning him in the middle of the season. I think things would have to go really, really disastrously yeah. for that to happen. But uh, I, like mean, it, I I had think,
3: this. I think if they go into May 15, 20 games under, I think the pressure will be on this is year Five. Maybe they're going to like give 2020 a mulligan or 2021, I'm sorry. But I, I don't know. I see this sort of like the Jeffrey Loria era where they fired Mike Redman almost halfway through May. I, I feel that if they're not, you know, if they feel that they're not playing to their to their best that they might they might switch managers i just see
2: it well definitely if you know we'll have to see exactly what the threshold is um they certainly have to be better than they were the last year for him to remain manager beyond 2022 it was how many years has it been just i guess two years now since they brought james rouse in aboard and at in that very moment my first thought like literally the day after Rousin came is that this guy smells exactly like a manager in waiting for all the connections that he had with the organization. And for what it's worth, you know, during the couple of weeks this season, when Madden was out with COVID and we got to see Rousin on the job and have him actually speak to him, like, and have him explain his decisions. I felt even though the team was pretty bad, actually during that two week stretch that that only kind of reinforced the idea that this guy yeah. is really cut out to be a, a manager. And so to me, the fact that, they got kind of fortunate in that the other openings around the league didn't line up for someone to steal him away, that he's he's on this coaching staff for next year. And that unless they, Mattingly the team itself reaches whatever threshold they they set for him in terms of on-field performance, again, exactly what that's going to be. I think we'll have to wait until it's a little closer to the start of the season, but they have a pretty obvious guy to kind of make an offer to at the end of next year. If that's what happens. I, I, yeah, I, I think they have too much, love and respect for Mattingly, the longest tenured manager in franchise history to uh, pull the plug during the season, unless things go really badly. No, no matter what though, the, there is going to be pretty finite expectations on how the team can perform. And like, just to touch on like a few things about this past season that went badly for him. The one that I guess is kind of out of your control is the fact that so many of his relievers cho- chose the absolute worst time to like fall apart that this team in, in clutch situations, particularly in the ninth inning, um, like when you feel like the game is put away or all you have to do is pitch a scoreless inning and like have an opportunity to walk it off in the bottom again and again and again and again, like whoever he put in those positions screwed up. It was initially Anthony Bass. then at times it was Yumi Garcia. Then it was Dylan Floro, even Anthony Bender. Anthony Bender got a small audition and that turned out to be the only situation that, his miraculous gifts could not handle. Like at the worst possible time um, that those guys just disappointed. And so the team underachieved in those tight games. And then the other one on the offensive side um, that I think you do have to give him more responsibility to is um, how he, how he managed the, um, the playing time and the uh, availability of his veteran players. He had this really irritating habit of resting Miggy row and, Pace's Aguilar kind of on the same days uh, for a team that just did not have that much margin of, of error offensively. You know, if you're missing a couple of your more consistent players on the same day, you're almost punting on that game. There and was that uh, one particular game.
1: I, yeah, yeah. yeah. One Sam particular Lewis. game
2: it was Aguilar and Rojas and Starling Marte all on the same day. Duval. And the team just needed. a Duvall. There was like, and, and he, yeah, he always did
1: it. Right before a day off, which yeah. honestly pissed me off even more, because I see where he, he's coming from. Hey, let's give him two days, but it's like, hey, they're already getting a day. <laughs> we need to win. <laughs> Let them play. Yeah, Jesus,
3: man. that's like the Madden yeah. special, man. He loves to do that. Days before days off, he'll give the entire you know four you know half of the lineup the day off for just for a sandy start that Sunday game at <laughs> uh, at St. Louis, man. That oh was just atrocious.
1: Yeah, I mean that was rough. You guys mentioned uh, Rouse and I'm 50-50 on where the team is. Like when he came in, I I thought exactly as you did. You know, this is next manager. Now I'm not so sure because he had one clear objective. You know, yeah, he was a bench coach, but his objective was clean up the offense in our team system, organization, everything, and it's just. It's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's an objective that was not, um, reached, you know, it's, 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 it hasn't been done. So I'm not sure where they are with him. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering if he is even, he's going to be the guy moving forward. Um, all right. So let's, let's, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about a strength. Um, Miami's biggest strength. That's, that's our beautiful rotation. We got the big three. That's Sandy. Just got an amazing extension. We got Pablo. We got Trevor. I mean, whoever tries to touch one of those three out of that rotation, unless, you know, an important trade comes in is crazy. After that, we have Eliezer. We have Sixto. We have Lozardo. We have Edward Cabrera. And then we have next tier guys like Braxton we have Potit, we have Nidert, and then we have top prospects like Max Meyer and McCambly. Um, I don't mention either because I'm going to talk about next year. Assuming no trades, who do you think will be the starting rotation? You know, the next two, not the big three. And who would you put on the starting rotation?
3: Um, well, you know, I shall, I'll take this one really quick. I think... Alex and I actually agree on this. I think six, though, has got to start the season in the minors, you know, just to revamp that arm. He had not pitch a single major league inning in 2021, so I think he's, you know, eliminated that opening day rotation question. I think, you know, Luzardo's going to be there. With just a half-decent spring, he'll be there, you know, after you said the aforementioned um, big three. Luzardo's probably at number four, maybe at number five, just so you know, have a little bit of space between him and the other lefty driver, assuming he's number three. And if Edward just comes out like Trevor did in 2021 in spring training, I think you got to get the spot to Edward. Maybe they give it to Boteet. But I think a rotation of those big three, and you have Edward four and Luzardo five, assuming Luzardo pitches the way he pitched on the last game of the season, on his last start of the season, I'm sorry, that's a pretty you know, potent rotation. I think that's the way I would go. 6-0 has got to start and prove it in AAA for at least you know all of April. And you go from there and you have those five, which I think you can't go wrong.
2: I'm probably lined up with, with him on that as Lizardo and Edward being the next man up. And I mean, that's kind of predicated on, for me, Eliezer being traded somewhere, which I felt was a foregone conclusion um, this off season. He's been floated yeah. in trade talks in, in the past and he's somebody that, um, I mean, I'm personally a little bit lower on him than perhaps some, some other people are yet. just the fact that he has this, he runs into a wall when he goes the third time through a lineup or in the fifth inning of a game, and even though he, he does on like underlying stats are really encouraging. And he's still relatively young despite being, you know, the great beard of this rotation that will we'll actually like, actually have to see him get, get traded first before actually kicking him out of the rotation. But uh, assuming he's gone, yeah. Luzardo and uh, Edward being those next guys up, I, I'm probably higher on Sixto Sanchez than anybody else, but even I have to admit that uh, coming off of this shoulder surgery and being a guy that for, for most of his career, well, there was career at this point, he hasn't pitched anything close to a full major league season that uh, we know even in a best case scenario in this rehab that he is, they're going to have to manage his workload again, which was going to be a frustrating part of the 2021 season. And that just got pushed back because he didn't pitch any like official endings this past year that just because of that, I have a hard time seeing him in the opening day rotation, but I have more confidence in him than I do in Lozardo, and even more than I, I do in, in Edward. I, I still think he's somehow underrated at this point. Um, coming off of that injury, as, as long as he's back to relatively close to who he used to be, I think he's going to be really su- successful. But that's probably going to come later in the year.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. They were speaking. We were talking about that on Twitter today, and about six. So just people forgetting exactly how dominant he really was in his rookie campaign. I know he had a couple of bad starts going against the same offense a couple of times for the second time, but you forget how he was in Wrigley Field on that playoff in the wild card game. You forget how he was in his debut against Juan Soto and just that entire Nationals lineup. He was rock solid. I'm with you, Eli. If he's, you know, if he didn't, he wasn't even projected to start 2021 in the major league rotation. So I would say coming off this, you know, ginormous surgery, all of this pressure, I think he definitely 100% starts 2022. And at least AAA, but I, I'm with you. I think he's one of the most undervalued guys. I don't know why Craig Mesh is so down on the guy, but he, I think he's going to be someone special and I wouldn't trade him for Quetel Marte, by the way.
2: And one, of, one other guy I want to mention is Nick Nider, and how much of a bummer it was for me watching him um, this year. I, I thought he, I really liked him. I, I really thought that, when he got his opportunity, which was, I guess, late in April this this year, when the back end of the rotation came up, I, I didn't think he was going to give up that spot. I thought he was going to hold it down, and just the among several, like, really bizarre things was the fact that he just was not commanding his pitches the way that he's supposed to. As a guy that you thought that was really the most exceptional part about him, and the one that would make him a viable starter for potential years to come that that was totally absent when he was in in the majors. And even in AAA, it was, it was kind of up and down too. Like he, um, I I was expecting more of nitrate and I'm not totally out on him. Like uh, uh, for, I want to kind of write that off as somewhat of a mulligan and I I wouldn't be shocked if he turns out being a really big piece, of the 20.2 season, just for all the, I guess, damage that was done to his stock this past year, he seems to be on the outside looking in at the rotation, but I still have pretty decent hopes for him. If uh, he makes the right tweaks to his game,
1: this may be a little bit rough, but I think that, you know, and it's, it's not cool to put this on Braxton and Neidert, but one of the reasons why, you know, we had so many issues, especially those first three months, is because Braxton and Niter didn't, didn't really come through, especially Niter. Um, it shouldn't have been them that were put in that position. It should have been, as you mentioned, Eli, a starter, a veteran starter uh, there for what happened. You know, Eliezer down and Sixto down. You got number four, number five out. Who are you going to bring up? So I think I think Hang uh, and, and Jeter and company had those two, along with Castano, had them like okay if something happens we have these guys who we trust, um, but they weren't ready. You know, as you mentioned, Niter, didn't do what he was supposed to do, which was give consistently five innings to the Marlins. You know, he just couldn't. He he didn't. He wasn't ready for it. Um, and Thompson, you know, he he did it, and Botique did it for a while too, um, but it ended up being the issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm also not, not out on either of those two, you know, Braxton, you know, people, th- people think that he's been a freaking veteran for how many years, but you know, before this season he had pitched at high A and like an inning at double A, you know, I mean, oh, and he did pitch in majors, a uh, couple starts too, uh, in 2020, but point is in terms of full seasons, he hasn't really had his, his high level, um, experienced yet double a triple a full seasons until last year until 2021 so i'm not out on him either um but yeah i mean that it's they got a good problem they're sold they're on their um yeah coming up now with with this rotation and i know they they're not supposed to but i really hope that lizardo is is in communication with stottlemeyer because um i was i've been really hoping for Stott to do his magic with that kid for, for next season.
0: Yeah. Agreed. So, I mean, I guess that segues kind of nicely into just a quick follow-up for either one of you guys to answer this one, Um, you know, with, with everything that the Marlins have that we just mentioned that are, that are already ready and that could be coming ready pretty quickly and guys that they have to add or risk losing, you know, how, how much of a leash do guys like, like Luzardo get? I mean, I know they, they traded, Starling Marte for him, and there's nothing to sneeze at for that. And he's going to get a chance at least to start of the season. So, I guess the question is, you know, leading into the season, how how much of a leash does a guy like Lizardo or a guy like Eddie Cabrera get in the rotation to prove it before they move on to some of these these minor league ready prospects? Hmm.
2: Well, I feel like uh, Lizardo is going to be on a, a pretty long leash. um just because of yeah what they gave up to to get him. Um, and I guess ultimately it, it looks even worse in hindsight that as it turns out, they really did want to keep Starling Marte around in one way or the other. And they, they decided that Lazardo was worth, you know, giving up that exclusive negotiating window in the second half of the year. And then ultimately they don't even re-sign Marte. So I feel like Luzardo, between the two, Lazardo would be on a, the slightly longer leash. He does have a more considerable major league track record to this point, um, And when it comes to, uh, to Eddie, I mean, I'm still extremely optimistic about his future, but there were like a couple red flags about even his small sample size performance in the majors, in particular, his changeup, which has always been a fascinating pitch, like he throws it a little differently than almost anybody else, the, how firmly he throws that pitch, and it was so successful in the minors, but it was terrible uh, during his big league time, like if you take away that pitch, then in the majors this past year, then he was more or less close to what we expected, but for whatever reason, he—that's if you want to talk about a guy that they could send down and give him something specific to work on, that might be it. That might, He's someone like that, where I could see a particular thing popping up and them going back to the drawing board and him actually benefiting for time, getting sent down if he does struggle. So between those two, I think uh, Lizardo would be on the longer leash. We'll have to see exactly what all these other moves that they make post-lockout, how much it trims their rotation depth. Um, So for the moment, they still have very good depth, but by trading away Zach Thompson and um who, who am I forgetting? Have they moved anybody else at this point? Well, if I project that they trade away Eliezer Hernandez, they haven't done that yet, but I, I think it's a, a pretty decent possibility. Then they um that's kind of making a real big commitment to the guys that they do hold on to all of a sudden they have pared down their depth uh, a little bit. And that's a vote of confidence for those other guys. Uh, so yeah, my theory is that again, contingent on exactly how many more moves they make, that um, whoever they, they start off with at the start of the year um, will get some uh, a nice leash on them to to show that they are good as uh, we think they could be, and then from there it just comes into the innings limit equation because it is still a relatively inexperienced group, relatively young group of guys that in in most cases, uh, aside from Sandy, you can't really trust to make 32 starts during the season anyway, just because of their lack of experience. And so when push comes to shove, if a guy's kind of teetering on that mediocre line, then you kind of default to the fact that they're not going to be in the rotation for the entire year anyway, they'll have to pick and choose the right spots to kind of shake things up on the back end.
0: Absolutely. Agreed. I, I mean, I just think that with with everything that the Marlins have coming that, um, I mean, obviously they're going to give Lozardo his fair shake and I think they definitely should. Um, but man, if, and I guess it's comforting to know that, you know, if Lazardo fails, hopefully not, if, if Lazardo can't work out his stuff. Um, and he does have some stuff to work out that there there's reinforcements, right? I mean, you, you have these Braxons, you have these Niners, you have, you have guys like that, that, that could definitely step in and, and take up the mantle for a competitive team, which is what the Marlins are building for. It's, it's, that's what I'm getting at. Dan Castano is another one. So yeah, I mean, you have guys that, that are there that can definitely take it up. If, if Luzardo is not a competitive pitcher um, and if, 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 if Eddie struggles, cause he definitely could. Cause as, as Eli said, he was, he was, throwing that change up so frequently. And and that that was so not the Edward Cabrera that I got to know while he was coming up, he was more fastball. And, you know, then starting this year in AAA he was throwing basically off of the changeup and then fastball secondary. So it was kind of weird. Um, I hope he gets back to the guy, the guy that he was when I saw him pitching in in years previous. So that's the guy that he needs to be. And I think that's, that's the most, uh, successful version of Edward Cabrera that we could see as pitching off the fastball. Anyways, uh, we'll move on. Um, we want to get to some moves and obviously there's been multiples. Um, so <laughs> I want to go back to, to, to Isaac on, on the first one. And it's, I, I think the biggest one um, in, in acquiring Jacob Stallings for Zach Thompson, who I, I think did a ton for the Marlins this as we've already said, coming up in a pinch, uh, really making a name for himself. I think with what he did, um, I think he jumps right into the Pittsburgh rotation. Um, personally. Um, they also part with Kyle Nicholas, who I think is, is really good. Um, great velocity. I really love how this guy can work everywhere with his fastball. He can bury it. He can elevate it. Um, he could spot a pitch and just blow guys away. Um, also a really good primary breaker, which I think is a slider. Um, still some questions. I think Isaac on him in regards to if he sticks as a starting pitcher um, we know that the Pirates are going to stick to that and try to develop him as a starting pitcher, which I, I think is a good move. Um, he really needs, I think, and I've said this to you before, to work on his repeatability first and foremost um, and his control and his command. Um, I think that's an issue because when he's, he's, you know, his fastball, I think is mostly straight. I have said this to you as well, that if he's placing his pitch in the middle of the plate or even sometimes on the corners, it can get smashed. So that needs to get worked out. And I believe um, he loses velocity Later in his starts, I think um, Daniel is aligned with me on this. So, yeah, that and um, his his development of a third pitch, I think, is what he really needs to work out. Um, but then the, the last guy in the trade is, is Connor Scott. And as you guys know, I mean, I still like Connor Scott. I mean, he's still just 22 years old. He's had a very disjointed minor league career due to injury in 2019. And, of course, the missed 2020. He also missed like a week and a half to two weeks Um, to begin the year, as we know um, with Beloit. But other, other than that, man, his second half in Beloit was incredible. He's still playing against guys that are younger than him at the single advanced level. Um, I think he's going to be given the time to, um, to really uh, develop in the, uh, in the pirate system because they have a lot of um, pretty close um, outfield prospects. So I think he could turn into a quality player. So um, that being said, with what the Marlins gave up, they addressed the immediate need in this organization, which is catcher because as we know, they don't have a lot at the minor league level, um, and they get their 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 starter here for the next uh, couple of years. So um, I just wanted to ask you what you thought about this trade, and um, and and how good is it for both sides? I think it's reciprocal. I think it's a great
3: trade for both sides. And I think when you take in consideration Connor Scott, I know Eli and I sort of you know thought of him as the third piece to that trade. I think he can very well be the number one piece, and for in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh size, I don't think there's a bigger victim to the shortened season in twenty twenty than him. I think Blad is another one, but I think he really, you know, could have benefited from another year of pro ball, and he really struggled, you know, in the first half of this season. So I think he might come back. At you know, I did some research on his second half, and he really did surge. So I think you know him coming back in a full season in Pittsburgh system. I think he's going to come out and possibly be a solid player, but you know what you said it, Miami addressed their most glaring need, in my opinion, more than center field, more than left field. That was catcher. I don't think there was a worse tandem in all of major league baseball, other than Alfaro and Sandy Leon. Mm-hmm. So I think that was, you know, inevitable. And I think they got the perfect guy three years with Jacob Stallings for hopefully, like you said, Kyle Nicholas to get it all together, keep his velocity deep in the games. That was huge. And for Connor Scott, he's, you know, I don't think he was as good as Cameron Meisner, for example. I don't think he was as good as Blade. So I think to give up those two prospects, you know, which might hurt the depth a little bit in outfield and pitching, but that's the, you know, those are the positions that they could have afforded to to part with. So and Zach Thompson, he's a great rotation piece, number four, number five. But other than that, it was a it was a solid trade for Miami. I give it an A minus.
2: I have a soft spot for Zach Thompson. People that follow me closely know that I was uh, really buying into what he did, especially the first half of the season when he was up in the big leagues, that he showed some very sp- interesting pitchability in that one particular weapon, that cutter, the uh, both of being able to induce soft contact and miss that, was it and throw it to both sides of the plate and gets lefties and righties. Like, I think there's something there. I think he's going to have a pretty sizable major league career, I even mean, though the ceiling isn't that high. Uh, th- that being said, I mean, these were areas where the Marlins could afford to subtract without really feeling it that much, both in the major league rotation. And that next wave of arms coming up right after that. And then as we touched on before uh, with these outfielders um, that were on this exact same track as Scott was, and some of them that were actually a little bit closer to being big league ready than Scott was like, this is an area where, you know, these are quality players, they don't sting quite as much, um, depending on who else you may have picked in those same spots. And with Stallings, he's, he's impressive. Uh, we just on fishstripes.com today as we're recording this brand new article, diving into his defense from Nicole Cahill, really illustrating exactly what he does well. And a spoiler alert, he does a lot of things well that make him pretty great, and especially relative to the other Marlins catchers that we've had in the past. I uh, When we talk about three years of control over him, uh, that's why I, where I pump the brakes a little bit. Is he going to be their primary catcher for all three years? I would probably bet against that. Uh, I think there are, if, if you want to have any sort of like warning signs I, that may drag him down by the end of that three years of control, it's definitely the bat and the combination of being a super slow runner and also a guy that just does not impact the ball very well at all. Like there just could come a point in 2024 where he's just unplayable offensively, where it's a lot like Sandy Leone and the fact that Sandy Leone, you know, people spoke extremely highly of him calling game and being intelligent and all that stuff. But when you are slugging 240, <laughs> you're just not playable. You really can't. There's a certain balance that you have to have between those aspects. And Stalling unfortunately, has some common ties with him as an offensive player. Some traits that, you know, you hope that he ages gracefully, but can't be totally certain by the end of that. For especially what they want to do this coming year, it was it made all the sense in the world. So I am, I'm pretty much lined up. Uh, probably even a little bit higher than than I was Like, like a, a pre- it was pretty damn close to the the perfect trade to make at this stage, uh, given the organization's needs. It was it was an A trade, and um, it gives them a lo- it leaves them so much flexibility to continue addressing their other needs. Eli, so you segwayed
0: it so, so- perfectly. We, we have to ask a quick follow up to this because I, I mean you segwayed it pretty damn perfectly um stallings as we talked about on on your show on on fish stripes live he became a star not long after nobody wanted anything to do with this guy right i mean he was 28 29 years old passing through waivers multiple times so i mean man i, I just have to ask you as you said you know maybe he's not the starter for the marlins you know in 2024 or, you know past that but what can this guy do for in-house options such as will banfield this is the guy that i really point to who's the guy that's really struggled in his minor league career offensively, defensively, really good, probably not far away from where Stallings was when, when when he was in the minor leagues defensively, offensively, as we know, not good. So my question is, what can a guy like Stallings in almost 32, age 32 at age 32, what can he do for guys that are coming up and hope to make a major league career like Banfield, like Cameron Barstad, like hopefully one day Joe Mac. Like w- what can this guy's leadership do for minor league prospects such
1: as those? I want to add two more to that. We who are not, you know, people don't talk about these two guys too much um, because our catching depth in the minors has really been increasing little by little. Um, maybe not in the top tens, only Mac, but in the forties, fifties, sixties, there are, I mean, you got a lot, a lot of catchers. Um, you got, you know, you got a painter Henry's, you got your battlefields, you got your Nick Fortes, Alex Jansky, etc. There are two guys, Ronald, Ronald Hernandez and Edward Duran. Those two guys, I really like. Um, they're very young, but especially Ronald, Ronald Hernandez. Oh man, like look out for that Venezuelan kid. Um, but yeah, super quick parentheses. Stallings as a leader. What do you guys have?
2: Uh, it's, I mean, at the very least, it's just a, a great example to set for other guys about resiliency, about um, also just even when some of these players reach an area of disappointment, when they reach that stage of their career, as as did when, you know, he thought he was at a dead end, when uh, he reached the big leagues and then was unclaimed by everybody and being discarded. Like, I mean, that alone, just being able to deal with that kind of adversity, that's, that's pretty strong out there as well. But one other particular thing that to mention with him is just how good he is at receiving pitches, both framing them and blocking pitches. And he does it as a guy that's a bit oversized for a catcher. He's a tall catcher. And that's something that taller catchers can struggle with probably more than other guys is being able to actually present those pitches and also being able to block those pitches. So he's coming off a year where as he very famously allowed zero pass balls and He also, you know, when he was behind the plate, fewer wild pitches than other guys um, were throwing. And so, I mean, that one that's a particular skill. That wasn't probably what Alex had in mind when he teed up the question, but that's like one particular skill that if he's able to do it at his size, I think he's either what six two or six three, being able to do it at that size and being able to impart those fundamentals to uh, other younger guys that some of whom are probably even built like more prototypical for catcher, like that can really go a long way in this organization where we know that the way that these pitchers are, these are nasty pitchers. Like this is a great organization at developing those swing and miss pitches um, for these guys that are in one aspect, you know, they're harder. It's better to have pitchers that have stuff like that. And that can make pitcher independent success by missing bats and keeping balls in the ballpark. But it's more important also to, be able to receive those pitches effectively and not give away extra bases when runners get on. Like if if you're in an organization where uh, you already have this great pitcher development program and this ability to refine pitches and introduce new swing and miss pitches that, you know, that's already established. And then if hopefully you have now this catcher culture of guys that are masters at receiving those pitches and in mitigating any pitches that, like, get in the dirt and all that stuff. Like, I feel like that would add up, and that's something that translates as you go all the way up the ladder is having guys that have those receiving skills that have been lacking, especially at the major league level um, in this past couple years. That's one other thing that could go a long way, too.
1: Absolutely, man. Um, But also kind of in that line, in terms of leadership – we saw that the Marlins um, extended Sandy, Sandy Alcantara. And, you know, we, we all know how important Sandy is. You know, he's an amazing pitcher and he's really starting to look like a leader, like one of those guys um, who the young kids look up to, even though he's still a kid as well um, in terms of, you know, decisions and um, you know, how, how, how you, that's a typical phrase, how you have players go about their business. Um, I really love that Miami had him present the Marlins jersey to Zayil. I know it was probably just, you know, like it happened because they needed to do the thing together and it just kind of happened, but it looked cool. You know, it's like a leader, you know, this isn't the general manager doing it. This is like an actual, you know, colleague, an actual player who's giving you this jersey. So I think, I think it's, it's also representative to what they think of him. Um, but it's also, you know, it's important to see the Marlins investing in guys like him and improving that they will keep the organization players, at least some of them. My question here um, and similar to um, what we just asked about Stallings is how important is it to have this guy um, extended and as a leader for the young guys, you know, for the young kids you know, are like, Imagine guys like, I had to just mention him because this is a Fish on the Farm podcast swimming upstream, Eury Perez. Imagine a guy like Eury Perez, um, you know, with, with Sandy looking, you know, talking to him in spring training and being, being close to him. Um, how important is it for this pitching, for pitching in our systems to have a guy like Sandy?
3: Oh, dude. Well, I think you know a great comparison. You know, is like everyone talks about Miguel Rojas being, you know, the, the unofficial team captain. I think it's just as important that they that they extended a guy like Sandy Alcantara. You look at guys like Edward Cabrera looking up to a guy like Sandy Alcantara in almost every single start. You know, every single start. You know, Sandy's out there in the top step, you know, helping him out. And you get mentioning a tall anchor like Uri Perez. You know, a little six eight guy. I think that's how tall he is. Sandy's a very tall pitcher as well. It just throws hard downward downhill playing it's just, you know, so huge. It's not only have, you know, guys like uh, Mel Sotomayor Jr. and all these great, you know, minds in the pitchers, even Pablo Lopez, but just to have Sandy that workhorse ace who you know, you know, pitches 200 innings almost, you know, it's confirmed almost every year. That is just, I think it's so monumental and more than just the statistics, just, you know, he's a, he's a smart kid. He's a quiet kid, but he really just provides so much value on and off the field.
2: And I mean, it's obviously a big contrast from Stallings, but I do feel he is somebody that, is able to be a good role model in overcoming, I wouldn't call it quite adversity, but there's really nobody else that we've been following uh, under this new ownership the last four plus years that is such a like, prime example of consistently getting better. And as he was somebody that when they acquired him, he was a highly regarded prospect. He was ranked, in most people's opinions, the top 100 overall prospect in the game. But when he reached the majors, I remember his MLB debut very clearly when he threw almost as many balls as strikes over the course of five innings. And, and that there was a lot of that in late 2018 and also for the first couple months of 2019. I, I remember very specifically in 2019 at times thinking that you know he could benefit from getting sent down to AAA. It got that kind of ugly at, at parts where he you could obviously see the good stuff and the ability, but um, he was, he had adjustments to do like, and he has constantly adjusted to the adjustments, made those counter adjustments at the big league level by, um, honing new pitches, by changing his, his usage of those pitches, the counts that he uses those pitches in by being able to this most recent season, what took his game to even another level is somehow throwing harder than he ever had before as a starter and just being able to, uh, whatever, like work ethic he has put into that to be a stronger pitcher than he was when he got called up, um, adding, I don't know how many pounds of muscle that he has, but it's very visible watching him and how that has changed his game and allowed him to reach this level where he enters next season as uh, a a trending pitcher, uh, not just in Miami, but everybody is, is aware of it. Like when that extension was announced and they saw that, wow, for his free agent years, it's only $17 million each. That's a bargain. And to reach that point where the expectation is for him to be an above average pitcher and the upside is for him to be a legitimate Cy Young contender. It it was not in that situation just a couple of years ago. He had to work to do that. There are other guys in this organization. Probably the very first one that comes to mind is Yeri, who does have that kind of upside that that's kind of the reason why I was worried that they wouldn't extend him is because this, this organization and how they develop pitchers would be, kind of um, arrogance enough to believe that they could just create the next Sandy um, to replace him at, at a cheaper cost without actually having to make this big contractual commitment. And I'm glad that they thought better of it and realized that, well, there's five rotation spots. Um, it'd be great to have somebody lock down one. And then if he turns out to not even be the best pitcher in the rotation, that's an amazing problem to have. Like that's how you get to the point where this is a championship contender is when you have other guys come up through the system and actually reach these same heights that Sandy has reached. And the easiest, uh, I would say a very big factor in helping these guys reach their potential is having um, a living, breathing example and mentor for them, like in-house and able to do it. I was so thrilled and again, a little bit surprised that they actually stepped up and did this. And it was so important to do it this winter, just because if you check back next winter and he continues oh, yeah. to do what he has done and Absolutely. if he gets a little bit better and he you're is done. one of the better pitchers in the league, then <laughs> you're not going to be able to uh, afford him on this budget that the Marlins had. They, I just have to applaud them for like recognizing the importance of doing this. And, I mean, the cherry on top of the extension was the fact that there's that club option at the very end yep. so that like, if he does, in the, in the best case scenario, he, he finishes off these next five years and he's still um, even if he's the pitcher that he is now that's a bargain and if he is the pitcher that uh, we think he could be an even better version then that's that's critical for them to put together a contending team. He is critical he's a great success story he is uh, like I, I would you have to say like the one biggest individual success story of this rebuild so far. so it's great that he's going to be around for hopefully the next half decade or more. There yeah. was a
1: point in 2019, and you mentioned it, Eli. There was a point right there where you saw him and you thought, wow, like, this guy could be amazing, which thankfully is what happened. Or he could be Urania. You know, it was it was like right there, like literally the Urania way, right? Oh, yeah, you know, he struck out seven per, per nine, seven strikes per nine, you know, throw hard, but not really do much with it or he can become really good. (laughs) Thankfully he did become, he's looking like he's going to become just an amazing, amazing pitcher, but you're right. In 2019, that's, that's what happened, but he kept adjusting and now you see it and it's so exciting.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you see this guy that, that came from this guy that, that, that was at a younger age struggling with a lot of stuff. He was struggling with his command. He was struggling with the third pitch, struggling with his control. And turns it into this this ace potential and and, and bona fide ace, I think, and definitely we all think. So to have that guy on the roster, you know, if he hits the free market, he's gonna make a lot more money than what he made that the Marlins gave him. I think for sure. Definitely. We all think so. So to have him here, here for five years guaranteed with with a um with a club option for his sixth year and his age 32 season, this is a guy who's gonna be mentoring young Marlins pitchers for a a very long time. And I think that's already being shown. He's already shown that he's a leader. He's already shown that he's able to turn and help these young prospects into being better than they are and help their development. You know, you see him in the dugout with Lazardo. you see him in the dugout with Eddie, you know, that that's nothing to sneeze at, you know, everything that he does on the field is great, but everything that does off the field is is also just equally as awesome. So the fact that this guy is going to be here for a, a long time is is, is very very encouraging and the fact that the Marlins were able to get it done now is is the perfect time as Eli said so um yeah I, th- I think Sandy is um is a, a Marlin forever and I think he's going to be a very 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 good one um for everything that we've seen and everything that he's capable of.
3: Thank you to the Marlin organization to believe in me believe in my talent I mean I'm here now I'm so happy I appreciate everybody you know I mean the fan I love this city you know and I'm here for a long time now you know I'm I love Miami too much, and I mean, I'm too excited right now. I can't explain, and I mean, I appreciate all the love, and thank you to my family. Thank you to the guy behind me, you know, and I love everybody. Thank you so much.
0: Stay tuned for part two of our 2021 Miami Marlins season recap show with Fish Drive's Eli Sussman and Isaac Azut coming soon on Swimming Upstream.